I'm Lara Land, somatic coach and yoga teacher trainer, and this is the Beyond Trauma podcast. What a couple of years we have had. The challenges continue to grow, and more and more of us are experiencing some level of traumatic stress. My commitment here is to bring you the most up-to-date insights on exactly how trauma affects our mind-body-spirit system and how we can work with our bodies to soften its impacts. You will be hearing from trauma survivors and researchers, and together, we are going to incorporate what they have to teach us to heal ourselves and promote the well-being of all those around us. Here we go. I am so excited to share that my book, The Essential Guide to Trauma-Sensitive Yoga, comes out this spring. This is the book for every yoga teacher, studio, and practitioner who wants to incorporate an inclusive approach to yoga. It is available for purchase on my website, laraland.us, and everywhere books are sold. If you're loving this podcast, you are going to love this book. Hi, everyone, and welcome back for a very sensitive and alive and important conversation this week. This is a conversation which gives you a lot more insight into my work, and I thought it would be good for you to hear. It can be triggering, so just keeping that in mind and listening as you feel able. And I know some of the topics could be a little bit of a a hot button topic here, and I can understand why. Today, I have on Annie Labrada, who I met through my role as executive director of Three and a Half Acres Yoga, a role I still have today. Three and a Half Acres Yoga is a nonprofit that I founded in 2015, which trains yoga teachers in trauma sensitivity and places them in partnership with organizations where trauma survivors are present. We decided at a certain point as part of our initiative to disrupt the cycles of trauma to start offering yoga to the NYPD. And you're going to hear more about that and why we did that and the impacts of that in this episode. Annie was an officer. She eventually became a sergeant who I met through my work with the NYPD. And she not only participated in our classes, but also went on to get her yoga teacher certification. And then after that, to do the training at Three and a Half Acres Yoga for her trauma-informed yoga certification. So I'm really proud of her and the work she and other members of the NYPD did within to address issues of trauma. And you're going to hear about a couple different officers who I've been in touch with over the years. I hope you'll be touched by her story and learn more about my work through this conversation. This is also a good time to announce that the next virtual Three and a Half Acres Yoga Trauma-Informed Training is happening. It's going to be March 4th and 5th, and registration is open. This training requires you to have a 200-hour yoga teacher training certification or more, but I also have some other things coming up where you don't need to be a yoga teacher. So a couple uh, housekeeping announcements uh, or Workshop announcements. March 24th to 26th is my reemergence retreat coming out of winter vibes. We'll be reemerging in the Catskills in Bloomville. I hope you'll join me. 
I have some other offerings around trauma, stress, and yoga coming up, which are live and in person. May 5th through 7th, I'll be at Ashtanga Yoga Montclair in New Jersey, my, my home state, leading a weekend workshop on stress, triggers, and trauma. We'll be doing mindfulness and breathing, and this is open to all levels, beginners, folks who left maybe practice or studio during pandemic, who are returning, whose practice have changed. It's going to be a great workshop. Also, I will be at Kripalu for the first time in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, June 30th to July 2nd. This will be a workshop on trauma. You don't have to be a teacher. You can be a yoga teacher. It's also great for teachers and healthcare professionals, folks who deal with trauma in their work. And uh, if you haven't been to Kripalu, it is a stunning place to be. It's worth it to do the retreat just or workshop training just to go there and eat their yummy food and be on the campus. And you can take other classes while you're there. It's very special. And of course, we're hoping to sell that out. My first time at Kripalu. And I'll also be at the Catskills Yoga Festival, Catskill Mountain Yoga Festival, July 22nd. I'll be linking all these in the show notes. Please use pricing option Lara Land so we know how people, how many people I'm bringing out for that festival. And the following weekend, I'll be leading a trauma-sensitive yoga training for longtime yoga practitioners and teachers at Play Catskills in Roxbury, New York. This is a very cute town. And so we're running this kind of as a training slash retreat. We're going to be uh, listing some Airbnbs you can stay at. We'll have links for kayaking. So uh, if this is speaking to you, I hope you'll come up for that. And on August 18th through 20th, I'll be at Miami Life Center in Miami, Florida. I'm really excited about this. My my first time there teaching, and that will be a trauma-informed weekend workshop with a focus on Ashtanga principles and techniques, how they can work or not work for trauma sensitivity. Really looking forward to that. So please come join me on this tour that is just the beginning, and I really hope to meet you all at some point along the way. But back to our conversation. Annie. Annie Labrada is a married mother of three. Her husband, Jose, also served with her on the MAPD for 20 years. They both retired this past July to spend more time with their family. In 2019, after the department lost 10 members who died by suicide, Annie decided to join the founders of NYPD Blue Karma Yoga, realizing how much her yoga practice helped regulate stress, handle intense emotions, and find peace. She knew that it could help others. Annie completed her 200-hour yoga teacher training in May of 2020 and taught her first class for BKY May 18th on Instagram Live. In-person classes would follow, and often officers were surprised how good they felt after class. Introducing several officers to their very first taste of yoga was one of the most rewarding parts of her career. Annie was promoted to sergeant in July of 2021. She served for the Transit District 1 in Columbus Circles. And stepping into a supervisory role was challenging, but difficult. Annie fell back at that time on her yoga practice. Annie Labrada and her family are now living in Costa Rica, and we'll talk about that as well. She's had quite a journey, and I'm so excited to see actually where her life takes her. Here we go. Thank you again, Annie, for making the time all the way from Costa Rica. 
<laughs> Super jealous. <laughs> I'm sure many people are who are experiencing uh, the deep winter right now. Actually, I just looked outside and it's just started snowing here. Yeah, quite a difference from the palm trees and the sunshine. It's actually summer here. So when we arrived in August, I thought that was hot. <laughs> and they were like, oh, just wait. That was the rainy beginning or like the middle of the rainy season here. And then the rain really picks up October and November and then summer comes. Wow. So we are in the summer now and it is beautiful and such a contrast to New York weather that I'm used to. Yes. And we are going to get to that and your, you know, how you ended up in Costa Rica. But I thought it would be nice to start a little bit earlier in your life. Tell me, where did you grow up? I grew up in Suffolk County out on Long Island on the North Shore in a little town called Rocky Point. Yeah. So I grew up my whole childhood. I grew up out there and only left when it was time to go to college. And where'd you go to college? So I bounced around a little bit, trying to find my way. I went my first year, I went to a SUNY school. Then I thought I wanted to be a nurse. So I transferred back to community college to get the prerequisites. And that's where I took some criminal justice classes that ultimately changed my career goals. Yeah. And then I ended up graduating from John Jay. And then you ended up on the NYPD. Right. Right. (laughs) Those classes. Sometimes community college gets an unfair shake. People have a preconceived notion of what it is, but I had the really great opportunity to be with some great former law enforcement and attorneys and the medical examiner. And that's who I took these classes with leaning towards criminal justice and figured out that that would be a great path for me, still be helping people, which is what I was looking for in nursing, but I wouldn't have to get through the science classes, which gave me such a hard time. And once I had found all these different avenues and careers that were possible in criminal justice, I really latched on to that and took only two police tests. I took the Suffolk County PD and the NYPD. I just thought if I want to be a police officer, I want to do it in the best place with the best department, with the best reputation, and took the job with NYPD upon graduate about a year after graduating. That's, I mean, I think that's unusual for a lot of people that, you know, don't just like know about that, about, you know, getting into the, into the force about, is your family, do you have any family members that are police officers? Oh, one of my uncles was a police officer in Suffolk County. And then as my father is, he's very deep into genealogy. And as he goes through our records, like way, way back, we can find officers in the department, but really that was it. And this uncle of mine actually came into my life when I was probably about 12 or 13, he married my aunt. So it wasn't as if I grew up with somebody in those formative years that was in law enforcement that the way my kids did. So no, I really was the only one, which is also, it's not uncommon, but there's so many people who have a legacy and a family line in the NYPD where it's passed down and down to through generations. But no, that wasn't the case with me. Yeah, usually that's how I think of it. And... <laughs> I'm curious. I, I love how you made that line between, you know, wanting to be in a in a helping field. And then it feels like 
you needed to be like on your feet. I think like nursing is also like that, right? Definitely. Definitely. I mean, they, my gosh, if we didn't appreciate nursing and the medical field, these last few years have certainly proved that they are another very, very unappreciated, dire group of people that we are just like indebted to. They do do the best work. When you go into the hospital, you see your doctor for a few minutes, but your nurse is really there with you the whole time. Yeah. 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 And the nurses, uh, it's nice that you said that today after, I don't know if you've been following the New York uh, news, but there was a big uh, nurse strike, but I think their demands were met, which is- Yeah, I saw that yesterday. It it really is. And I, I know you guys have recently partnered with the hospitals, right? I mean, they experienced so much trauma and had to make so many rough decisions in the last few years. They they are certainly in need of you guys. Yeah, we've been working with Mount Sinai nurses. That's right, mm-hmm. offering some trauma sensitive yoga, and we are very very happy to be doing that. I wonder. So when you were at John Jay, and I mean, you could have. I believe people go into like defense, into like attorney or a prosecutor. I mean, there were many routes that you that you could have taken there. Was there an officer you met who got you excited about that job? Or can you identify more about what what called you into that service? The professor I had out in Long Island at Suffolk Community College was um, retired from the NYPD. And he was so positive about it and so positive about his experience. He definitely encouraged me And my plan had been, I would do five years at local law enforcement in the NYPD and then move on to customs. And what happened was I got into the NYPD and realized I wanted to still be close to New York. And I really loved what the NYPD had to offer. They really, if you are interested in anything you can kind of do on the outside, you can really do within the NYPD. I've worked with people who came to the NYPD as accountants, as lawyers, social workers, teachers. If you were a teacher before this, you could go teach at the academy. If you were a nurse, I've worked with plenty of nurses, they would go work for our medical division. So that I felt the opportunities in the NYPD would be better. And I found comfort there and just ended up not looking to move federally and just stay at that level of local law enforcement. Yeah, I, th- I think a lot of people don't realize because it's a very uh, contained institution <laughs> that mm-hmm. every single the NYPD has every single job within it. I mean, I I've been um, privileged enough to see a little bit inside. I mean, everything from the NYPD orchestra musicians to mm-hmm. uh, beekeeper. <laughs> it's a That's whole right. world. It's its own universe. So many people, when they think about NYPD, they they probably think about the officers that they see in their cars, but there's there's every kind of job. It's like its own little world. It really is. And it that diversity and that full spectrum of people, you're getting people from not only like their personal cultural backgrounds, I've worked with officers from all over the world, but then they bring with them this experience that they gained in other industries. So maybe once they get pulled into the department, you'll say like, wow, this person is really great at social media. We're going to have them handle our social media. 
And this person is really great at our art. So they are going to go be one of our sketch artists. They're an amazing artist and they have attention to detail. We're going to have them work with our victims to come up with a sketch mm. of a, for a wanted poster. And uh, you are a pilot in the military. Great. We, we'd love to have you in our aviation unit. So they're, and then look at, look at Quinn and Anant and I, who have this passion for yoga, who got to use that and help other officers. It's really not what I think you're absolutely right. It's not what people would think. They're thinking, well, that officer is invaluable. There's also tons of other routes you can take. Yeah. And that was groundbreaking what you did there. We're going to get to that as well. I'm just <laughs> still so curious about like this decision and then the training, how was it to train in the academy? Obviously, this is a kind of, I mean, I, I see it as a male-dominated space for many of us who never held a gun before. Like, what was that like for you, all those kind of elements? Well, sort of to give you an idea into my decision-making for this, it's so important to know the time we're talking about. I was in the police academy with 2,000 other officers. And just think back to 20 years ago, we were the very first class after 9-11. So patriotism, pride in New York City, pride in service was at an all-time high. I mean, to apply for the NYPD, you have to be meticulous with your paperwork, with your past, with your history, how you how you conducted yourself before. They were able to, our applicant processing was able to be so particular because everybody wanted to be on that job at that time. So mm. that certainly played a part into it. While I was very nervous, I had you bring up the firearms. I had never handled a firearm before. I had never been given that authority or position. I've never, never done any kind of work like this before. The job I had upon graduating John Jay, I was a caseworker for in the South Bronx with people who were afflicted with HIV and AIDS. So I was still in a helping profession, but I had never done anything like this before. But I think every American at that time felt a real calling to help the city and help New York and be a part of it. So that definitely weighed into my decision, like, wow, this is really a a great way to help the city and be a part of something so wonderful. And I was apprehensive about certain things, like I am a bit of a people pleaser, and I'm like, geez, how am I going to tell everybody no when they want to do something that they can't? And you know what, You the, the police department needs all types of people. And that's what I, I just kept thinking. They, I was in it to help people, which I would think most officers are. They're there to help. They're there to help. In my instance, this wasn't my community, but I wanted to help people in New York. I've traveled in there so much growing up and always felt comforted when I saw a police officer. So the, the training was great. We were you're divided up into a company at the, the police academy at the time was on 20th Street on the east side. We're at a little old academy, not like the big fancy one they have now, which is an amazing facility. But we were really a tight group of people in my company. A lot of us 
were living in Astoria at the time. So we could commute together and hang out together on the weekends and study for our exams. And you really build a tight camaraderie with these people. I'm still in touch with a lot of them, a lot of the guys and gals that I spent those six months with. Because it is a grueling, like not grueling, but it's like a tiring, emotional, you're studying, you're working out physically. And for some people, those things were a breeze. Some people, you know, everybody has their strengths and it, it really made you close together. You're in a uniform. I hadn't been in a uniform and my I was like, had a candy striper uniform when I was younger. I hadn't been in the same uniform with people. I didn't go to a private school or anything like that. So all those little things that build camaraderie and closeness, your struggles and your triumphs, you know, when you pass the driving test and it's a, a victory that you can all celebrate together and you you laugh a lot it's a lot of it's a lot of like I don't know how to describe it other than real real good team building like we really were very close when we graduated and um, went off to our commands and as far as it being our company probably had maybe a little under 30 percent women I bet there was about 10 of us in that group. 10 women. And yeah, the guys were all great. I didn't feel uncomfortable with them or anything like that. They would help you out. And like I said, we all became closer as a group during that training because you're with each other so much. I was with them more than I was with my roommates at the time. Yeah. When you go through something like that with a kind of a cohort, I can definitely relate to that even in like a yoga cohort or <laughs> right. in a, you know, graduated the class doing something really hard together. And it's only, you know, you know what the other ones are going through. It's a very special bond that gets built. Right. Right. I remember one day, one of the officers in our company, his daughter would meet him after school, after she got let out of school right near us. And then they would walk to the N and the R train together and go home while well, it was her birthday that day. And all 30 of us stood out on the street corner and sang her happy birthday. Mm. <laughs> and Aww. it was really sweet. You know, she was at like a young age where it was kind of in that attention. And yeah. yeah, it was really nice. Somebody else had a baby and we put together a gift basket for him and his family. So, yeah, it really was a nice group of people that I, I look back on that time so fondly. Hmm. And where did you go after you completed your training? What was your position? So as a brand new officer, I went to the two, three precinct in Spanish Harlem. And what was, what was it like starting out there? So there was a really big group of us. We were in, we were the first class of what was called operation impact where they would flood high crime areas with a, uh, great amount of officers. Those commands got the most amount of officers. So we were there in a big group. I can't remember how many of us got sent there. Intimidating. You have to go. And uh, you've never, I've never been to that part of the city. I'd never been to that precinct and you have to go and navigate your way there. I didn't have a car then. I was living right in Astoria. So I just took the train up and introduced myself, got a locker. The women were very nice, very welcoming. And then I I do remember after the first roll call, them just saying, okay, this is where your post is. And then you're walking out there. 
And I don't know what I had expected, but I don't think that was it. I think I thought they would put us all in a van and drop us off. But we were all together again. You know, they'd say, all right, you have 110th in Lexington. Make your way out there. And there would be like a drove of us after roll call walking out, just trickling off. The group would come smaller and smaller as you got further away from the precinct as people stopped at their post. Mm -hmm. And then it's then you know you'd get checked on during your tour your sergeant would come around and you could see officers on the next block up but pretty much you would be there maybe if you had a busy post you might be there with another officer and I wasn't prepared for how much you just people kind of are watching what you're doing and seeing how you conduct yourself so maybe in a previous job you might be able to just relax or I don't know you didn't didn't feel so much of like the eyes on you so that was like a a bit of an adjustment yeah (laughs) that people would really be looking to you to see what you're doing especially in in an emergency Um, I don't know what I again it's just not knowing what to expect you're like oh yeah that's me okay yeah let me go do that (laughs) (laughs) yeah you put on this uniform like you said and you kind of take on a, a role a very identifiable role. Yeah, I've heard it explained that you're getting looked at from both directions, like from the community and then from your superiors at the same time. Absolutely. I mean, that's what's great about the academy is they would check over your uniform. You know, you, you have to look a certain way. You have to look professional to, to bring comfort to people. So the whole time you're in the academy, they're checking your uniform and making sure you look sharp. And yeah, then you know, you'd be on the corner and, and some people would say, hi, oh, so many people were happy to see you there. The community wants you there. The woman or man who have to send their kid to walk to school, they want to see a police officer on the corner. And a woman going to the store late at night, because we worked late at night, we'd work like 5.30 p.m. to 2 a.m. They want to see you on the corner when they're coming home from their family or their church or the supermarket. And there's people that don't want to see you on the corner, but that's such a small group of people. And mm. You don't have to, you know, you're there for them anyway. It doesn't matter if they, mm. if they don't want you there. And then, and yeah, you'd be checked on by your supervisors during the day, by your training officers or during your shift, I should say. So yeah, you're getting looked at a lot. And that's a bit of an adjustment. Yeah, my sort of understanding. And I, I really like how you put us in a time context you know, starting in, in 9-11. And then I'm curious how that, the dynamics and energy of of New Yorkers and then of, in you know, inside uh, as much as you can share changed over those years. Because I saw a little bit of that by the time I started working with the NYPD. And it seemed like by the end of your reign, it wasn't as much of a welcoming feeling from both sides. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. And I I can talk about it now. It's so bizarre, too. You're institutionalized over 20 years to be able to speak about certain things. And you know, because you tried to come teach yoga, and you Mm. saw what an obstacle that was. And when you're a member of the police department, you're not, I wouldn't really have been able to do an interview like this without permission from our press. And it's because they, they do have a lot of responsibility to the community. And you don't want people just speaking on any topic i understand why there's procedures in place yeah it really did the pendulum really swung during my time in the department and the best 
sort of imagery I can give for that is that when we got hired in July of 2002, you have to remember, like I said, just about 9-11, the Yankees, the most probably notable sports team I am aware of and the most notable franchise. You can go anywhere in the world mm. and find somebody wearing a Yankee hat. Very they true. were wearing our hats during their baseball game. They were wearing NYPD hats. And towards the end of my career, you didn't even want to tell somebody you were a police officer because, like, let's say I met somebody socially at an event. You know, you go to somebody's baby shower, you go to a, a summer picnic, and somebody asks what you do. You don't even want to say you're a police officer because you can't enjoy yourself after that. Mm. Everybody has a question. I got a ticket. Why mm. would I have gotten a ticket? Like, I can't answer why you would have for another police officer in another jurisdiction. I can't even answer for another officer in the NYPD why you would have gotten a ticket. You're just like trying to enjoy yourself and somebody wants to bring their negative experience into it and have you answer for either a major incident in the world or something very minor. When we got on in 2002, people were saying like, wow, you're NYPD. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Thank you. And not that I, I need that, but you became defensive after a while. Like, oh, I don't, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to talk about my work because now the police are not perceived in a good light for something that 99% of the police had nothing to do with. You know, you, I can't answer why certain things have happened. I can just know that I am doing my job the right way. And most officers, I think, do their job in the right way. I wonder, you know, Annie, I think there became more um, light on the, well, a couple of things are coming to my mind. One is, you know, in, in this institution, there's a lot of uh, hierarchy, procedure, rules, and there's also this element of, which you described even from the beginning with the cohort of this kind of, this camaraderie and a, a closeness. And so you have this protection of each other and then within this, and then all these kind of rules and hierarchy and I mean, one could see how that could result in some negative outcomes, also some positive ones. And I wonder how you see all of that playing out. And I don't know if you were ever conflicted, just like any reflections on, on those dynamics. Um, so the NYPD does a, a very good job of oversight, of making sure things are going the right way, you know, having inspections units and internal affairs and these units are all absolutely necessary. And I do think they do a good job. I've never experienced or seen something that I thought like was inappropriate where I felt like there was misconduct. And I think if you do, there's a no there's so many ways to report it. There's anonymous ways, there's ways where you can speak to a supervisor, like something as simple as speaking to a supervisor or calling an anonymous tip line. Mm -hmm. So I think we do a great job of that. I know what you're saying. And I think a lot of people worry that police blindly defend each other. And I, that is not the case for me. I can look at national cases that are brought into focus and say, Hey, that was absolutely not right. It's nothing that 
I would have done or would do in my career or experience, and this officer was wrong. I have no problem saying that I feel that way. And I think the camaraderie is there because you are exposed to trauma more often than the average human being. I don't really follow sports, but I see you can't really avoid hearing about this fella on the football team Mm. who collapsed on the field and how all these people are talking about how upsetting that was to see and not knowing the outcome. And law enforcement and EMTs and firemen are exposed to that a few times in their day. It could mm. it could happen. Yeah. And when you think about that compounded trauma, that's something that only your coworker can understand. Even if you're I'm married to a police officer, but if you were not you can't really go home and explain that and have your partner understand exactly how that felt. Yeah. Um, so that also builds camaraderie and that's kind of unavoidable. And that builds closeness. Now you're thinking like, oh man, you and I went through that and I'm going to check on you for the rest of the week or as mm. long as it takes. Like, hey, are you doing all right? I know that was really upsetting to see that whatever the, the trauma was. Yeah, I'm really glad and, you pointed that out. And um, yeah, that's, I just, yeah, yeah, go on in, go on in. For people who were at that game, I saw a couple of tweets after or during it. You know, it is upsetting and it is heart wrenching. And there's, while you, all these f- people who were there for entertainment and there in the spirit of sport were now placed into this situation, that was upsetting for them where the EMTs who rushed out onto that field and helped him. And uh, the the only thing on their mind is getting him to be okay. They don't care what the score is. They don't care who had the most touchdowns. They are there just to make sure that everybody's okay. So I think that's really important to keep in mind and keep in mind that the officer, the EMT, or any of these is the nurse are there human like you they could have started their day off on the wrong foot and then they're traumatized during their shift maybe a couple times and how that impacts them in the long term yeah and that's exactly what i uh where i'd like to go i mean uh that's why my nonprofit, three and a half acres yoga decided to start offering yoga to to the NYPD officers because I wonder what so having that much exposure to trauma and then what are the tools that you were given to release that you know to let that out of the body or if it's not getting processed did that change you or did you see that change other people I mean we know with exposure to trauma for instance we could become hypervigilant we might react before getting all the information because we're jumpy. Right. You know, the other end of that would be to stop caring. You know, some people at a certain point, they just disassociate. They don't have those feelings of caring anymore because they just can't even take it in. Yeah, I think the department now is doing a great job of helping address that and treat it but I don't know that those tools were always there. And I think they're realizing that officers need that and they need 
to talk about things that have happened. They need to get, be given resources, not only within the department, because you may not be so trusting of that, but outside of the department. And there are resources like that through Columbia Presbyterian. There's um, finest care that officers may feel more inclined to discuss things with a doctor if they're not employed by the NYPD, which we have department mm-hmm. psychiatrists. And yeah. that's very new. That's a new program. And thank goodness it's there. I don't know that there were these things before. Officers are very hesitant to ask for help. And it, they it's so understandable that they would need it. Right. So what are you doing with that besides carrying it? and carrying it and you know some officers have great coping skills they'll have a workout regimen that's really really helps them or they can like exercise in a way that's productive and helps get rid of stress at least if they don't feel comfortable talking they're doing something physical to get it out but not everybody has those tools or was brought up that way or introduced to it has a a positive coping mechanism. Did you see the trauma and the stress have an impact on you? I had a, a really about that. I was not exposed to trauma nearly as much as the average officer who stays on patrol. So I fortunately, when I had any traumatic incidents, I've had good coping skills there. I've had a yoga and meditation practice. I have sought out professional help when needed and that was that's all like I think how you're brought up my family was very comfortable with getting help if you needed it and talking about things but if you don't have those tools going in it could be a bumpy road I don't know how many how you would find that without the initiatives that have just recently come into play with the department in the last few years yeah. I mean, I'm I'm sure it gets internalized. I'm for sure there's there's a, you know, a, maybe alcoholism and I know this can be high. I think there's also quite a high suicide rate. I've spoken to you about this. So, let's see. I took my yoga teacher training in 2019 I started and it, I we finished in 2020. And through that yoga teacher training, I found sobriety, which you mentioned like a high rate of alcoholism. Well, alcohol is, it's not like, it's more like a social thing after work, right? So you had a stressful shift and maybe everybody's going to go out after work and that leads, or maybe they had a fine shift and they just want to hang out after work. I mean, when you're working those hours, the only people that are around are your coworkers. <laughs> like when we were brand new, we had Tuesday and Wednesday off. Like your friends aren't going out on a Tuesday and a Wednesday. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you end up socializing together a lot too. And alcohol definitely could become a part of a big part of your social life. I just realized going through teacher training, like, you know what? I don't want this to be a part of my life. Looking at the all the different limbs of yoga and realizing you want to treat your body better, that alcohol shouldn't be a part of that for me. And I found other officers in the department who had done the same thing. And while that it was a little quiet, like not everybody is so public with that. And I don't, you know, care care to speculate why. I think if it's part of a, a social culture, it might be difficult to say like, oh no, I don't drink or um, 
I don't want people to think like, oh, she has a problem. But I just found for me, it was better to be sober and deal with whatever things were coming along without a cope, a negative coping mechanism like alcohol and focus more on yoga, on your internal and how you're feeling instead of numbing it. That's incredible, Annie. How how long have you been practicing yoga and how did the decision come about to get uh, your teacher training? I found a yoga practice probably 20 years ago. I'm serious about it. I would just do it here and there until about 2006. I experienced like a really negative personal relationship and a therapist suggested yoga. And then that, that was like my peace of mind. That was like something I could focus on every day that was productive, that I felt at peace and relaxed and rested and really could get quiet. I think after like a go, go, go lifestyle and the unpredictability that the police department provided, that was like very stable, very centering. And I know that word is used so much, but it really is for me. And remains that way. That's so beautiful. I wonder if there are certain postures or practices that uh, you're doing regularly that are particularly helpful for you. Yeah. So even the transition that I'm in now, it feels like I was on a racetrack all these last years. The last 20 years felt like you were on just like in a speeding car going so fast and days were blurring into the next and Mm. now that I've retired it feels like a complete slowdown and that's even a huge transition where I'm like wow I have a lot of time on my hands yeah Um, I don't commute I don't get in the car and drive to work and then work work overtime work extra shifts and settling again settling into a practice where I can sit. I always found comfort in legs up the wall. I recommend that to every officer mm-hmm. who's carrying all that gear and on their feet all day. Just roll, roll out your mat and put, put your legs up and let your blood circulate. Give your heart a break. Give your lungs a break and quiet yourself and your mind for a bit. I would do that in the locker room at work. <laughs> Some of the girls would walk in, the women would walk in and be like, what is going on in here? Like, just do it. Trust me, just do it. That is my go-to as well. Yeah, it. you're a very busy woman. You're a mom, you're running this organization. You are on your feet, I can only assume, a lot as well. And you kind of, that'll force you to relax. Yes. <laughs> Which so many of us need. So you you were deep into yoga for 20 years and then you got your yoga um, teacher training or teacher certification while you were still with the NYPD. And I guess yes. we, we met around maybe the same time-ish or a little bit earlier before, right? Yeah, a few years earlier we had met. You came to our headquarters and did a class, which was incredible. I just thought like, look at this woman who's here to provide this service that we so deeply need. And then to find out everything you were doing in the Harlem area for another community that really needed you, uh, needs you, I should say, was so meaningful to me. 
And yeah, that yeah, was wild. Kind of, we've, <laughs> <laughs> it we, really was. That was a good amount of people there. <laughs> so three and a half acres had formed and um, we actually started 2014, but really formed formally in 2015. Started bringing yoga to nonprofits, community spaces, a lot of shelters, harm reduction centers, places like that, uh, mainly in Harlem and Upper mm-hmm. Manhattan. And I know, you know, we started talking about offering yoga to the local precincts, really based on what you and I talked about earlier, that there is a lot of trauma exposure, which we know does lead to certain physiological Mm -hmm. outcomes. You know, when you're traumatized, your prefrontal cortex, it really go. it's not as much online. That is the part of our brain that takes time to do some decision-making and think ahead and outcomes. And without that, we're more impulsive. And we just Mm -hmm. felt like, let's see if, and in, in certain ways, and this was something we had to think about when we were offering our classes, is if there were officers that were about to go into their shifts, like they couldn't be all zoned out, (laughs) you know, they have to have a, you know, (laughs) you have to have a certain amount of alertness. So we couldn't Mm -hmm. maybe go into too deep relaxation, but striking that balance, right. Being able to be alert and at the same time, um, not, not hyper that clarity. So I started going to roll calls, you know, The two eight, the three two. I had to learn this language. I'd be like, I'm the twenty eighth. They're like, no, that's not how you say. Yes. It. So I started adjusting <laughs> my language, yeah, to get the right speak. So I got better after a few times. Then you know, I still got laughed at a little bit, but <laughs> I got more in the right the right language. And I started kind of picking up which pitches would work. And um, we started, you know, getting and we would plan the classes kind of around when someone was. The, the in between tours and and then the the next leg what we tried to do is is work with officers and young people in the neighborhood bringing them together through yoga and i know mm-hmm. you came you also came up for for at least one of those sessions with your daughters yes yes that was great that was i think maybe with some of the explorers from the 28 exactly and that was a really nice, really nice program. We felt like, you know, because they saw that breakdown and mistrust that maybe if folks could get to know each other and recognize faces, it would be a different relationship when they might meet, you know, outside of the yoga context. It was very challenging to implement all these programs, <laughs> as you know. And I don't even know how I ended up, you know, I met the right person that got me a meeting at headquarters and I was able to do that really big class there. And I had dreams of adding a yoga component to the academy Mm -hmm. so that everyone coming through the academy would also have some of the principles of yoga, of nervous system regulation, of, you know, understanding a little bit about our thoughts and how they, how they impact our feelings and, you know, all of that kind of stuff that not everyone is exposed to so far it hasn't happened. And, <laughs> but I was very, very excited to see that something else did happen, which is this health and wellness and yoga program coming 
out of the, so instead of my outsiderness coming in, which is very, very hard in, in the NYPD to sort of break through as an outsider, this organization started from within the NYPD. Maybe you can share a little bit about that and your, your part in that. Well, that was certainly a labor of love. I don't know how that was started or the history so much of like the actual person that was behind it. Um, I believe we had a really, really high rate of suicide in the department, and this was spurned because of that. And the health and wellness unit, uh, I don't want to speak for them, but they, I, I might be a little off here, but they are composed of psychiatrists and social workers and somebody who is really into fitness and meal planning. The yoga component was huge. They have, I think they cover the employee assistance unit, which has therapy dogs there now. So it's really a very all like all encompassing unit where if somebody, an officer that you work with or that you think might be benefit from their services, you can do a nice referral to them and they will speak to them. They also go through um, incidents that could be seen as very traumatic and then pull those officers in and speak to them and see if they would like any referrals and just see how they're doing and follow up with them, which is incredibly insightful to allow somebody to talk even if they're not willing to talk to a department person like we suggested it might just plant the seed and kind of validate them that like hey this thing that you experienced this trauma was not normal it's okay to want to talk to somebody and maybe if you just encourage that a little bit and then provide them the resources, they will look and think, hey, this is okay to take care of myself. And not to name drop, but you've met Aaron, who works there, Aaron I Roman, was just thinking of just, Aaron. Yeah, I mean, he, I don't think, realizes how powerful his social media account is and how great it is to see somebody speaking on these important topics and just kind of giving you permission to we say this all the time, it's okay to not be okay. But especially I think for men to hear it from another man, like it is okay to be not be okay and to ask for help. And in fact, you should do that. You should take care of yourself. You're, he's so big on saying like, you know, you're here, here for your family too. You have mm -hmm. to take care of yourself so you can take care of your family. And he was recruited immediately into health and wellness, rightfully so. He's got a great platform that so many officers can relate to. He had, I mentioned that I had a very nice career in the NYPD. Aaron actually did it all. He was in a lot of high stress units where the pressure is a lot and guys can relate to him. And they're going to say like, they might look to him and say, yeah, that, you know what? You're absolutely right. I should get help if I need it. And he'll teach you how to work out. Him and his partners can help with meal planning because running on the go all the time will lead to eating bad food and not taking care of yourself, saying like, all right, I got to do a double today. So I'm going to drink a monster drink. I'm going to drink an energy drink to keep me going. And they're very good about the nutrition side of that, where taking care of yourself also means taking care of your body and what you're putting into it. So I think, and then Quinn, who started Blue Karma Yoga with Anat, the way 
that came about and I'm not the authority again she she would be much better to speak to about this but she was interviewed by the times about her being a yoga instructor and bringing that to her precinct in Queens and she would just do it very informally but she helped a lot of people and then the New York Times did an article on her that Amat saw saw and they linked up and started Blue Karma Yoga as a sports team. And that was how they kind of were able to bring yoga to everybody. And then talk, that was a real, real labor of love. They like were so persistent that this was necessary. This would help officers. And then began teaching at the academy. And if a command requested them, like the 3-2 requested them, that commanding officer at the time was really into wellness and invited them there. And I, my plan had been, okay, when I retire, I'm going to become a, a yoga instructor. And Quinn, talking with Quinn, she was like, we really need somebody to help. The two of us can't do this. And that's what got me into my yoga teacher training in 2019. Okay. I'm just qu- quieting that voice. Like, well, who am I to teach yoga? But mm. I'm glad that I listened to them and got into it. Yeah, and, and I'll link Aaron's Instagram so people can know what we're talking about. And I definitely want to, I've been trying to get in touch with Quinn. We've been texting a little bit. Quinn has also retired, right? Yes. Yeah. And so it seems like, unfortunately, this program, is it continuing or is it kind of without the three of you? It's a... <laughs> I know Quinn offers classes to NYPD in Long Beach, so they can attend that way. But I don't know that classes are being brought to the commands, which is a shame because we got to introduce it to a lot of people who had never been exposed to yoga. Patrol is so stressful that if given the opportunity, like 10 years ago, if I said to a 4 to 12 roll call, hey, do you guys want to come to yoga? They probably would have like chuckled or laughed at me. And now patrol is just so rough. It's always been rough, but it's not, it's just tough. And people would say like, oh, wait, the commanding officer is letting me go to yoga instead of do, they'll cover my patrol spot so I can go to yoga. So you would get a full class. And a lot of those people had never been to yoga. And afterwards, without a doubt, I hadn't met one person who didn't have a positive experience. And they'll say, like, this isn't what I thought. I thought, you know, they think we're going to be sitting in Lotus, burning sage, (laughs) homing the whole time. Meanwhile, you'll get these guys that are in the gym all the time. And they're like, holy cow, that was a workout. I feel great. That was not what I thought. I really liked this pose. I really liked the breathing techniques you were teaching. That was such a rewarding experience for me to be able to bring that to people who had a preconceived notion and then kind of turned that around for them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you should feel really proud about that. I was glad to still be a part of that and to come out. I remember we were out together in Central Park. I don't know what that, I don't remember what that event was called, but it was like a yoga health and wellness event. And so many people came out and I remember a lot of the officer said it was their first time being uh, exposed to yoga and they seemed to really get into it. Right. Right. 
Yeah, that was really special. And uh, you and your team were instrumental. I was having audio difficulties that day. And your team was excellent walking around and demoing poses and helping people since there were so many new people. And just on a very simple level, to be able to teach in that venue to that many people in the NYPD was incredible for all of us that were involved. Um, And we really appreciated you guys being there, you and your team. What made you decide to retire, Annie, if it's okay to ask you that? Yeah, because NYPD members are eligible to retire. Uh, You can leave anytime, of course, but if you want your pension, you generally work till 20 years and then you can leave with your pension. The more you stay, the more benefit it is to you financially. But as far as our mental health and our for our family, the best thing was for my husband and I to retire at 20 years. It had just become in the last few years between COVID and a defund the police movement and just kind of like the state of the world. It just became clear to us that we had done our 20 years and and that was good enough, but it was very stressful in the end. They need more and more from the police department. They're asking for more. There's a bit of pushback towards policing. And it was just not as rewarding as it had been. And while the people are great, I worked with such great people, again, that I'm still very much in touch with. It was time for us to go. My kids are 9, 11, and 14. And these are really crucial years we're getting into that I want to be around for. And it had, it was becoming more and more difficult to be around as much as I wanted to working and commuting. So given that opportunity, uh, we had missed out enough with our kids and our family time together. And one of the biggest perks of that job is that you can retire at 20 years. So while I'm young and healthy, I want to be with my family as much as I can. And I'll still work and everything, but it was time for that career to close the chapter on that. So smart. So smart. I mean, you can never get these moments back with the kiddos. I'm aware of that every day. My little one. And um, right. I mean, that kind of leads us to now. So we started off with sharing where you are in beautiful Costa Rica. (laughs) How how did you end up um, retiring to deciding to spend the year in Costa Rica? Uh, This had always been a dream of mine. I wanted to move our family to another country and live, you know, live abroad for a year and expose my kids to something different, have them pick up a language, have them see the privilege and beauty of the United States is not what everybody experiences. And it's not all the wonderful things that we take for granted are not a given all over the world. Mm. And I wanted us to have an adventure. I wanted, we had spent so much time with two of us on this job. We've worked most, if not all the Thanksgiving day parades. So we would work Thanksgiving and then go home and have a late dinner or sometimes our kids would be able to come to the parade. But it was a lot of shuffling over the Mm. years. And our kids have just been 
on this roller coaster with us. So I thought this would be a nice way to take like a year to decompress and be together and see a little bit of the world. And it had really just been a dream. And then it was COVID really that made so many of us realize that nothing is a given, that things can change in a moment. And we really have to take advantage of the opportunities and the time that we have together, right? Absolutely agree with that. So while it was like we had gotten COVID twice and it was the second time we got it, I just said to my husband, like, listen, we need to really celebrate when we are able to retire, that we've made it, we've made it out of family. It is very tough on a marriage when two people are on this job. It's tough enough for law enforcement, but then with two people. So I really wanted to do something big to celebrate that. Mm. And we had originally, years ago, we thought, let's get a camper. And the year we retire, we'll drive around the country and do all the national parks and show the kids the country. And oh yeah, I'll homeschool the kids. And a silver lining of COVID was that it taught me I am in fact not a teacher. (laughs) I give teachers so much credit. I couldn't do it. We struggled through e-learning. So then we were back to living abroad. And we looked at a bunch of different countries, considered a bunch of different places. And we found that Costa Rica has a great value placed on education when they took away the military and abolished the military in this country. All that money went towards education. So we knew the kids wouldn't fall behind. They would still be able to get a great education here. We looked for healthcare and we looked for safety. And we found all of that in Costa Rica. Plus my husband is fluent in Spanish. So we we would be all right with the language. And yeah, we decided to take like a family gap year. We found a house to live. We live at a surf camp and in a house, uh, right in walking distance to the beach, walking distance to town. The kids are at a nice, really nice international school where they're exposed to kids from all over the world. And they have friends from all over the world as a result. And yeah, we, not everybody can kind of do this. I'm such a big dreamer. (laughs) I convinced my husband and we, yeah, we retired July 1st and then we moved, we were on a plane with a one-way ticket down here July 31st. Wow. I love it. And I love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's been a wild ride. I'm thankful for my practice because I did think it was, I knew it would be challenging, but it's been a lot of ups and downs, but overall it's been great. It's been great for our family to spend this time together. Just an incredible experience for learning about yourself and about yourselves as a family, really shifting, just getting yourself out of your environment into a new place and discovering some new things about yourself, you know, parts of yourself maybe that you haven't explored, solving problems and having challenges that are different from the ones that that you are having at home. I mean, I think just what a great way to head into this next chapter of your life. I wonder, Annie, if you have a sense of what's coming next for you. Any clues as to where you're where you might be going in, in the future? My plan was to do this for a year and then come back. I wanted to become a postpartum doula. And I still am interested in that, but I mentioned that this has had its ups and downs. And 
at times I've said like, you know what, this is too much. We need to go home. We need to go back to New York. And I've had a lot of time to think. I also mentioned how much free time I have now that I'm not working. Just given me a new respect for anybody who has to leave their home. So I've had a day where I'm like, this is it. I can't take it. We're going home. And we could go home. We could go home back to a safe home in New York. We are here because we have made a lot of great decisions and we come from a wonderful country. We're here in a very luxurious way, right? I cannot imagine when you have to leave your home because you're not safe. Your country is not safe. You're not being protected. Your children are in danger. So that's something to do with that, whether it's working with the refugee crisis or working to help, especially women who have escaped not best situations, because I can't imagine having having to make those decisions and then you and maybe you don't know the language and you don't know the customs and what a challenge that would be. So that's kind of just come to me recently that that might be a nice area for me to step into. Yes. Yes. So many people are displaced every year. And I, I can't, I think about that a lot. We actually have some, some folks close by here where I'm living. It's a, a longer story than I even fully know or, or could explain right now, but they were, they're in danger of being imprisoned or by Putin. And they came here to the U.S. to escape and got put into some kind of camps. They weren't exactly welcomed with open arms and now have ended up in our town here. So um, we've been raising some money to help get them settled and just trying to participate locally. You know, what kind of difference that we can make for what's going on right here, right now. So such, I mean, and you have such a really open and a smart perspective on so many aspects of life. I really appreciate your, just everything you brought to this space today, you know, from your reflection on the nurses and on trauma and how open you've been to sharing your your journey and your experience. I know that, I mean, I, I dared to just really ask you a, a lot of questions about your life. And I think that your story will benefit a lot of people. I wanted to mention also to folks that you took our trauma-sensitive yoga teacher training at Three and a Half Acres, which we have another one coming up uh, the first weekend of March. Um, any words on that experience, Annie? That was such a great experience. I really, really enjoyed it. It was so insightful. And my gosh, one whole day of our yoga teacher training was on music and picking the right music and this and that. And I just didn't occur to me that that could be triggering to people to hear a certain song, or maybe it's the distraction, or maybe they're coming there for solace. And then you blast this song with great intentions, perhaps, and it could upset somebody. I learned so many things that that day, how to be inclusive, so much of the yoga community. And I see it a lot here that people will think like, I just want to go. I don't want to do yoga because 
I don't know how to do a headstand or I don't know how to do all these poses that I see on Instagram. And your training was so inclusive. That really is the best word to say, just how to make that practice available to everybody, whether they're physically limited or if they have a block about it, how to make them feel comfortable and make that a safe space for everybody and a place of tranquility. I would recommend that training to anybody who's already a practitioner or even, I don't know what you're required, if you have to have your 200 hour or 500, but if I just recommend it to even people who want to deepen their practice, right, and learn more about it. It was really wonderful. You had a great lineup of speakers. My only complaint was that I wish it could be longer. (laughs) I enjoyed it so much. (laughs) Yeah. And we have added sessions. So um, you have some time now. I'll send you the links where anyone who went through it before and didn't get some of those guest teachers that are part of it now are welcome to um, to do those sessions. And I've added in a kind of advanced trauma-sensitive training program. So there are more, there are ways to continue on and I oh, can send you those. But I really appreciate that, that insight, you know, that, that was like the music was not the first thing that I think you would say, but that's exactly right. Um, you usually, mostly we ask uh, folks to have a, a 200 hour because we won't be teaching like a yoga teacher training basics. This is something to kind of add or adjust to your training. And one of the biggest things that we do is like dispel some of the stuff that is taught in some of the teacher trainings. And, you know, it doesn't mean that you will never use music again. I mean, you might not, but it does, it's not about right or wrong, but really understanding some of the choices that we're making in the class and how that could turn someone off from the practice and a practice that could really be beneficial to them. I always joke that it's kind of like the training is like an unteaching <laughs> of some things that <laughs> right, folks have right. been taught in their in their trainings. Annie, I'm like always so excited when I get to talk to you. Is there anything that I neglected to ask you that would make you feel more complete to add to this conversation? No, I think I feel the same way, Lara. I really admire you and respect you so much. You are such a hard worker and bring so much to not just the yoga community, but your community. And I look forward to seeing all these things that you're going to do in the future And thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Annie. As we buzz around the busy world, it becomes clear there are billions of paths. As we buzz around the busy world, we will appear in other people's photographs. As we speed through the centuries, we will collide and the light will bend. We will be accidentally immortalized in someone else's land.